So guys, we're back in the book of Romans. Uh, if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The last time we were in Romans together, we were looking at the wrath of God. and We were looking at how the wrath of God not only is uh, in the Old Testament, but is also evident and seen throughout the New Testament. We looked... Um, extensively at that and we also rebuttal those who claim that God today is a God of just solely and merely of love and that his wrath does not exist and hell does not exist nor does he judge the ungodly nor the wicked but that God is simply and only love. So having put that to rest we can understand that God is indeed a God of wrath and a God of love and many other attributes besides. But Paul here takes this opportunity in the book of Romans to unpack the wrath of God and the judgment that is to come and therefore why the gospel is indeed the good news. So we'll read down uh, from verse 18 and uh, we'll probably read more than we'll unpack this morning but it'll be good for us to take it all with regards to the context and the fullness of its counsel. So Romans 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they do not honour him as God, or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to detestable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women. And were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men. And receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to the debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, uh, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they did not do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's really the essence of what we will look at over several weeks. This morning, what I hope to do is get down as far as verse 23. But before we come before God and have him reveal his word to us, let us ask him to guide us in prayer. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come and we ask you, O Lord, to help us, Lord, in the frailty of our minds to understand the complexities of you, Father, and your hand and how you work. 
We pray, O Lord, that we can see, O Father, that you are indeed a righteous, holy judge that truly judges only the wicked and those who deserve to be judged. Father, help us to see in light of Paul's writings here in the fullness of the gospel therein, God, that we are indeed unworthy, that we are indeed unrighteous and we are truly evil apart from your saving grace and the Holy Spirit turning us, Lord, to the light. We ask, Father, that you guide us and we pray, Father, particularly for myself, that I add nothing or take anything away from your word, but that we may be nurtured this morning and help, Father God, to grow and to spiritually mature in the knowledge of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So to see, as I said, we unpack the word wrath, and we'll just go back up and read down through it again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Now it is at this juncture that many people do not like what Paul is saying here. And the term is universalism. And what universalism does is universalism wants to say, well hold on here, even though there is tribes and people groups throughout the world that do not know the gospel and haven't had an opportunity to accept the gospel, they are worshipping God in their own way. And in fact we'd probably be better off to leave them as and where they are. And this is something that is taking more and more of a root within the church, particularly based upon the denial of the wrath of God. If we believe and solely only believe in the one attribute of God, which is God is a God of love, then these are the problems that spill out of that. For how could a God of love and only love judge those who have never heard the gospel? How could a God and only a God of love judge someone who is born into a context that is gospel impoverished? How could God truly show judgment to a people group that have never heard the gospel or never has it been brought to them? Surely if God is a God of love then he is all encompassing and Christ's atonement upon the cross is sufficient even for those who have never heard about it. You be careful with that. That is not what Paul says here. Paul deliberately attacks that way of thinking. And the reason for his attacking that is he says that his eternal power and divine nature have clearly been perceived ever since the creation of the world. In other words, if you've never heard the word God or Yahweh or Christ or Jesus or the gospel, you can know through God's creation that there is a God and that he deserves to be worshipped. It is also at this juncture that Paul tackles something that is becoming more and more to the fore, which is the belief and the total denial of a creator. And how science, in its first steps, wants to show how the world was created. But science cannot answer the question here that Paul sets forth. We can understand how we are on a globe that is spinning at a thousand miles an hour, going around a big ball of fire, which is the sun. We can understand our solar system. We can understand how the rains happen. We can understand so many things of nature. But the one thing that we can't fathom, and science has no answer for, is the power. How does it happen? For those of us who live in, here in Ireland, we are blessed 
by God continually showing his attributes by the rain that keeps falling on us. The magic that is nature that has evaporation that lifts water to find gravity up into the air but then culminates up in the clouds, floats there tons and tons and tons and tons of it and then moves over onto us and it then falls down to the ground and the cycle is repeated. But for many of us we have to sometimes think of the power that that would take. For many people they want to make estimates but we don't need to go into the figures. But if you imagine the volume of coal or nuclear power that would have to be generated to burn that much vapour for it to go up into the clouds. And then the amount of generated cooling that would have to happen to cause that vapour then to once again turn into water droplets. And then have it moved and blown by some other power source and then to have it fall upon the ground. One of the figures I did get, which was by NASA, which is a hurricane, an average hurricane within its life cycle, produces the equivalent of 10,000 nuclear bombs of power. 10,000 nuclear bombs of power for one hurricane. So if we understand the power that is behind it, that is why science leads ultimately to one place when it talks about creation, which is if there was a big bang and if the whole of the cosmos and everything that is the galaxies and the universe, if it is all continually expanding, where did that power source come from? Where is the power to drive us as the earth around the sun? Where is the power that started off the sun? Where is the eternal power source that started everything? And you ultimately come to that question to say, it is and only can be God. This notion, this idea that there was simply one Adam or one amoeba that said to itself one day, hey, let me become two. It doesn't hold any weight. There is nothing within the scientific world that will tell us that right now today a beach ball could just appear out of nowhere. Everything has to have a driving power source. Everything consumes. Everything has to have that driver to it. And we think of the winds and the oceans and everything that is working as nature is in our earth that we have to ask who powers it. We can say how it comes to pass. We can understand the processes of it coming to pass. But we can't fathom the massive power source that started it all in motion. Which is what we read of in Genesis when God spoke and therefore creation came. It is the power that comes from him. This is why Paul says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. You can know that there is a God and you can know that he is a creator and you can know that you're meant to pay him homage and you're meant to worship him and you're meant to have a relationship with him through the fact that everything screams that there is a creator. The complexities of a flower, the coming of a caterpillar into being a butterfly. No matter what we perceive in creation, every single thing screams that it was designed and that it is specific and how every single thing works and is in line with each other had to have been by a creator. It is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Every tribe, every people, every person in this world started off with the knowledge of God. Adam and Eve were the beginning and every single people group that came from that at one stage knew the truth. But they suppressed the truth. 
They didn't want to know the truth. And that's why he says in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain. If you want to know an attribute of God, then you look at every single creation that he made, including ourselves. Why do we have eyes? Because we are to see. Therefore, we can know that our God, our creator, knew the importance of seeing and how he sees. He knew the complexities of the importance of allowing us to hear, allowing us to perceive, allowing us to have emotions. All these things are divine attributes of the creator himself given to the creature. The beauty of a sunrise or a sunset. All these strokes of God in meadow landscapes and mountain landscapes and all the 4K videos that you can watch on YouTube are all there to scream of a God who is a God of creation and joy and love, excitement, art. All these things are attributes of him that we have. If you want to know who God is and what God is like, look at his creation, Paul says. To know about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. It is an eternal, never exhausting power source that is God that moves all of creation to his beat. Even down to the birth of a human and the coming together of that conception, everything screams of a creator. So when we think of that, we have to then step back and answer that question. If people want to say, it's not right, it's not just, it's not fair that those who have never heard the gospel should perish, that those who have never heard the gospel should be born into a society and be sent to hell. And God says, it is clear to them if they would awaken themselves and perceive that I am indeed God, the creator. But yet God answers that as well. Whenever he talks about why he sent Christ, if you turn with me to John 3.16, a famous passage that we know so well. But it is the entirety of John 3.16 that speaks truly about the love of God. For it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is for many people why Arminianism clings so tightly to there it is. Whoever, whomever believes, it is a free decision, a free choice that if you choose to see and perceive that God indeed is a creator and stop suppressing the truth that is innately everywhere that screams that he is indeed God, then you will be saved. But he says, you should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Holy Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. We, as a people on this earth, God's creation, mankind, love the darkness. Because of the fall, we deny the truth of God. Every scientist, every person that does not know the gospel, does not know God, suppresses their findings and the truth within themselves because they love evil. That's why God had to send Christ. 
It is the simple understanding that no one, no one will ever come to God. No one is good. No one is righteous apart from God coming to them first. Enlightening them first and giving them the ability to accept the gospel. Christ came into the darkness of the world as the true light. He who was there whenever God said, let there be light, came. And yet they rejected him because they love the darkness. They love the things that they do. Because it works for evil. Verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. This is the inerrant ability of every person. This is the fact that whenever you go and you give people the glorious good news that God Almighty, the creator and power source, the one who can spin hurricanes all over the earth, who controls every single thing down to the smallest atom, places the stars and controls patterns of birds, everything in the snowfall, lightning strikes, all this majestic power that is on display before everybody comes and says, you can be set free from my wrath if you would but accept Christ. You could know that I am truly Yahweh Almighty if you would simply perceive me in nature. But they reject the light. They reject the truth. They reject the gospel because it is not within them to desire it. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. He has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest their works should be exposed. No one perceives what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah whenever they jump and they shout in the parades of pride festivals. They do not want to see their own works exposed that we're going to go and look at with regards to sins that are just the same as any other sin of homosexuality, for example. They do not believe it. They suppress it. They reject it. They turn aside from past. They turn aside from who God is. And they turn aside from the fact that God says, anyone who does such things, you will be judged. Least his work should be exposed. Verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Anyone who does anything that is remotely good or righteous, whenever they come to saving faith, whenever they come and say, I reject that, I turn from that, that used to be my desire, that used to be my comfort, that used to be what I do, but I have been given a new nature, and it's so that all can see that is the work of God. For no one can do that outside of God. See, that is the separation of religion that Paul is going to get into throughout the book of Romans. Where we can conjure things. We can paint the outside of ourselves. We can make people think that we are something else. But when it comes down to your own thoughts and your own heart. You cannot change it. Because you love and I love. Or we used to love the things of the world. And the evil that is the devil. 
So that when we do come to repentance, all can clearly see that the works that we carried out have been carried out and only carried out in God. Not in man. At least we could boast. Back to Romans. This is why Christ was sent. This is why Christ has come to give us the ability to be able to stop suppressing the truth and to start accepting the divine nature of God that is so clearly perceived. His eternal power and his attributes. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This speaks of an everyday occurrence and this speaks of what has happened to every person and every people group throughout this planet. That we, in our own desire as sinners, darken our own hearts. We do not want to be enlightened. We will not accept God's attributes in nature because we do not want God. Now for the Old Testament, we're going to look at something. I want to show you this example. If you turn to 1 Samuel, please. 1 Samuel chapter 4. Not to go through the whole context of uh, chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, but this is the Philistines and they're going to capture the ark. And at this stage, Israel do not want God. They have not given God his due uh, glory, his due honour. God is simply something that is a box. In fact, they're in war in the beginning of chapter 4 and they lose their first battle. And they're surprised by it. Are we not the people of God and yet we've lost? So they say, go and fetch God. That God somehow could be consigned to a box. They miss the fact that God is indeed the creator and sustainer of the world. And he is everywhere. Yes, God came and rested between the cherubim of the Ark of the Covenant. And that was a representation of how he dwelt with his people. And whenever things got tough, like most people in this world, they don't want to know God. They don't want to pay him tribute. They don't want to pray. They don't want to do anything until it gets tough. When their life's in the line, then maybe they'll turn. So the Philistines are coming. Israel is going to be defeated. So they come together and say, go and get the box. Bring God down. Go fetch him. Because after all, God's here will not lose. So that's exactly what they do. We'll jump in in verse 5. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel gave a mighty shout. So the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians and with, very, with every sort of plague in the wilderness, take courage and be men, O Philistines. Least you become slaves to the Hebrews. The Philistines knew what this meant. The God that is like no other. The God that they knew and had, had his glory had moved outside of what happened in Egypt with Pharaoh. And the destruction of all of Pharaoh's armies and the chariots and the mighty power that was Egypt. 
came down to be nothing before the power of Almighty God. And now they know that God is in the camp of the Hebrews. Woe to us, for here comes judgment. Woe to us, for God is in their midst. These pagan, adulterous worshippers of idols know more about who God is than the Israelites did. Why did they not bring the Ark of the Covenant in the beginning? Because they got caught up in ritual and religion. And they wanted little even to know about God. And they started to darken their own minds and darken their own hearts and turn away from the attributes of God. Even at this stage, they still think that they're going to be victorious. Right, so the Philistines fought, and we'll jump down to verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, and every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli were dead. They get defeated. Because they only wanted God in their midst to win the battle and not to worship him. They only wanted God in their midst because previously they thought that they could win the battle on their own strength, their own merit and their own strategics. And here God is giving them up and judging them by allowing the ark to be captured. He goes on to say as soon as the ark of God being captured was mentioned to Eli, he fell over backward and broke his neck and died. So now the high priest is also dead. Jump down to chapter 5, verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it uh, from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and put it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. So they don't know what to do with this box. So they bring it into their temple, the temple of Dagon, the half man, half fish god. In the midst of doing that, they woke up the next day, and needless to say, the statue to Dagon had fallen over, bowing down, face first to the ground towards the ark. God makes it plain to know that no, he will not be in the presence of any other god with a small g, for he is the Almighty. Then if you jump down to Verse 8 it says, So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God uh, of Israel there. Now just before they bring the ark to Gath, not only did that statue fall down the first day, the second day after they lifted it up, it fell down, its head came off and its hands came off. And then God's hand pressed against them. And mice with all kinds of diseases came into their city and gave them plagues and all the testable kinds of things. And also tumours started to develop, particularly on, let's say, politely, their backside. Discomfort, sickness, and the wrath of God was falling upon this pagan Gentile nation. So they said, what do we do? So they sent it to Gath. And when it goes to Gath, for those of us who don't know where Gath is, that's where Goliath comes from. And again, the same thing happens there. And they don't want it. And they say, send it on. They send it on down the road again to the next time. And they scream and say, we don't want it either. So this is what I want to see. Jump down to chapter 6. Whenever then the Philistine leaders and all their high priests and everybody comes together and says, what shall we do? This has gone on for seven months. We're in agony, we're in turmoil, we've got tumours, we've got plagues, we've got diseases. So this is what is said to them. 
Chapter 6, verse 1, The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us what we shall send it to its place. And they said, If you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty. But by all means return him a guilt offering. This is a pagan nation that knows nothing of the commandments of Moses. Knows nothing of God's attributes. They simply have heard of God's works through the people of Israel. But yet they come to the understanding that they are to give a guilt offering. Why should they send a guilt offering? Because they know they're guilty of sin. They know that the judgment of God upon them is justified. So therefore they say, let's get it out of here. Let's come away from this judgment. What should we do? Well, let's repent of our sins. Let's acknowledge our guilt before this God. And let's pay tribute and homage to it. Even though they themselves were pagans. And this is the same thing that is echoed throughout the entirety of the world. That everyone, even though they still haven't heard the gospel, still have to come to the understanding of who God is through his creation. And come and repent and turn of their sins and seek after God. But they don't. Because they love what is evil. Here they said, let's send a guilt offering, then you will be healed and it will be known to you why this has been done to turn away from you. And then they go on to say in verse 6, why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? Let us not be like Pharaoh. Let us honour God. Let us acknowledge that we're sinners. Let us accept that we are guilty wretched worms that deserve to have these mice and these tumours and the pain and everything that is there. We deserve the wrath of God. They acknowledge it. They pay tribute through gold and through sending off the ark in in a proper way and then God's hand relents off of them. So whenever we come to this understanding, we have to make sure that we understand what it says. If you come back to Romans Whenever we read in verse 20, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Every person who has ever heard the gospel has no excuse. Every person who has never heard the gospel has no excuse. If you are able to cognitively perceive creation... Outside of disabilities, then you have no excuse. It's one of the reasons why you can reverse this passage for newborn infants to be able to give courage and hope to to parents that are grieving to say, well, that child has an excuse because they cannot perceive as yet to the attributes of God. Any tribe, any people, any nation throughout the world do not have an excuse on the day that they stand before God Almighty. Even the pagan Philistines knew that they were guilty and deserved judgment. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. This is the trend of today. The PhD, the doctor of philosophy, the doctors of science, the professors that stand with all these creditations and they give uh, the fact that God does not exist And that creation was from evolution. And God is saying here they are a fool. Claiming to be wise. They are 
fools. And any of us who believe and acknowledge the foolishness to even believe that this earth is tens of millions of years old and we're going to cling to carbon dating and deny the fact that there's a creator and that everything came to motion by an accident of a cosmic power that no one can explain and no one can fathom that just all of a sudden came into being. You're a fool. You claim to be wise and yet you know nothing. And the reason why you will not accept the truth is because you suppress it, because you love the darkness and you love the evilness of your own heart. Verse 23, we'll finish. And exchange the glory of a mortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds, animals, and creeping things. We had time this morning we could look at the bells and so many gods that are throughout history bedded into a culture from the green man who has the leaves around his head that is around all over the world that is this so-called god of the forest and so many other things that have been worshipped down even to the golden calf that was forged by those who were rescued out of Egypt. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God and his praise and his praise alone to worship stone, gold, silver and statues. To build temples to nothing. And yet, what do we do today? This is the argument. It's Sunday today. People have exchanged the glory of coming into a place such as this and to sit and to gather with people and to pay tribute to God. To worship him, to set one day a week aside. To make it truly holy. To pay tribute so that all can see we do not work on, this, on the Lord's day. Because we accept the statutes for the Sabbath. And we accept that this today, although it is not the Sabbath, is his day. And if he rested, we shall as well. Even for us who live in our mind, today have the fallout over the St. Patrick's Day parade of whether and why it cannot be on a Sunday. They do not, nor does anybody else, fall down before golden images in the UK or in Ireland. But we do fall down beside one God, the God of self. Why should I pay tribute to him? Sunday is my day. Why should I acknowledge him? Sunday is my day. Why do I give him honour? I made myself this way. Why should I pay tribute to him? It is my strength, my thinking, my working, my university degree, all by me and he does nothing. Claiming to be wise, they're fools. And they've exchanged the glory of God Almighty for the glory of self. I want to be lifted up. I want to be acknowledged. I want to be God. I want to be king. I want to rule over my life with no one to say anything to me. We take words like equality and we twist it into being able to do the dark things that we want to do. We reject his day. We reject his statutes. We reject his commands. In fact, Rebecca this week was talking to somebody who has a coffee shop close by. And he said, it is amazing how busy he is 
and his busiest day is a Sunday, particularly between 10 and 1. The new Lord's Day is the worship of the self. I'm going to go and get a nice meal. I'm going to go and get a nice breakfast because I deserve this because I have done much this week. That is the new God of today, the God of self. And people are exchanging the immortal, almighty God for themselves. So if we come to this understanding of what Paul is saying, we have to realise that this is setting the mark as to why everyone has no excuse. The gospel must indeed go to the ends of the earth. It is good news and that no one will accept this good news unless God reveals it to them. So that when they do come into the light, it is the knowledge that they came to the light in and through the power of God's grace. Although they should be able to accept it, they cannot. For they love the darkness. So I pray this morning as we go this week as God's disciples to make disciples. We are holding to that understanding. God they will not change nor will they accept the light. They will not turn from the worship of self to the worship of you. They will not reject their own statutes to accept your statutes. Unless you move and cause them so that you may be glorified and honoured. And all can see that they have come to the light because of you. That's what we hold to. That's what we pray. And let us remember not to believe those who claim to be wise, the PhDs and the philosophers in universities who are fools, not my words, gods. And they will indeed stand one day before the almighty power that is God and they will have to pay the due penalty of their sin. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that we can be reminded, Lord, that every shower of rain that falls upon us, the majesty of your hand, O God, that if we see the destruction of the hurricanes around this world, Father, about what NASA said, about how that is the equivalent of 10,000 nuclear bombs of power, we can understand that that is but a glimpse of the mighty power of our God. We thank you, Father, that you did indeed send Christ, that who shall believeth upon him shall have eternal life. Lord, we thank you that we believe because you drew us into the light. I pray, Father, for all of us, God, and those who may be even listening online as this is recorded with Father, that we can examine ourselves in that. Am I in the light? Or am I still in the darkness? Am I giving you glory? Or do I seek glory for myself? Am I doing your statutes? Or have I created perverse statutes that I cling to under the name of the gospel of Christ? Father, help us to see in your nature and in your creation and in our lives that you are almighty, that you are God and we are nothing. We are dust and you are the Lord. Help us, Father God, to rejoice that if we do know you and we know you indeed and our hearts have been changed, that we can stand before your presence and be counted righteous because of Christ. 
that each work that we do is a work that you have given to us, Father God, for your glory. For every breath that we draw is for your glory. And that our lives, O oh Lord, are our lives that are to pay homage to you. Father, we thank you even now for the rains that fall upon this roof. We thank you, Father, that they fall by your omnipotence, your providential hand. That you will not allow one drop to fall anywhere in this earth that you have not decreed. And therefore we cling tightly, Lord, to we worship a God that is all-powerful and controls all things. Help us, therefore, to find rest in the turmoil and tempest of doubt in our faith. Thank you, Father, for this time this morning. May you bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll close the sound of worship.